nation, as a city, we know that you are greater than all of those things. And I pray that rather than focus on the issues, focus on problems, we'll focus on you, the, the God of the universe, who are great and you are good and you are for us. Father, I just pray that you'll now take the living word of God. Father, we thank you that, that you've given us given us your presence here this morning in a special way we've come into contact with you as we worshiped and now i pray that you'll take the living word of god and you would use it to transform our lives that we would leave change today because we've been in your presence and heard from your word and we thank you in jesus name amen please be seated Well, we had a lot of, lot of courageous people that made it last Sunday, even though it was snowy. I know I, one of the things that I've discovered here is when, when they plow your road, it's not always a good thing because <laughs> your driveway's covered. And then it's, you know, if, if you don't have a, a huge snowblower, I've seen some of these piles of snow in people's driveways. They're out there digging out their mailbox and digging. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. So, so I understand that you didn't make it, so um, that's, that's okay. God, God is good, just so you know, that God is good, and he, he works in the context of where we are, so, but glad to see you all made it today. We are at war, and when I say that, most of us think of wars in the Middle East, the war against Islamic fascists or radical terrorists, ISIS in Syria, war in Afghanistan, or the war in Iraq. And we are in that war. In fact, that war has been called by some World War III. But the war I'm talking about is a war of ideas, a, of values, a war of history, the vision for the future of our country. For many years, the church has been absent from this battleground, told they don't belong. Be silent, stay away. These are political issues. We will handle politics, you handle religion. Some have called these the culture wars, culture wars. Well, we are a Wesleyan church. I'm gonna go back and look at some history today. Some of you may know all this, some of you may not. According to Wesleyan pastor and historian, Dr. James Garlow, the Wesleyan Church was founded in 1843 when a group of Methodist pastors were informed they could not discuss the slave issue in the Methodist Church because it was too divisive. In other words, alleged unity trumped biblical truth, but the bold pastors would not be silent and were forced out of the Methodist Church at that time. And they formed what was then called the Wesleyan Methodist Connection of America, now simply called the Wesleyan Church. And they didn't confine themselves to words alone. Some of the early Wesleyan church buildings were a day's journey apart, so members could smuggle the slaves from the south to the north to freedom as part of the Underground Railroad. This boldness made them many enemies. These men and their congregations endured prejudice, shootings, even hanging attempts. In fact, one county in South Carolina, there was a saying, there's not enough rope to hang all the Wesleyans. We are called to preach Jesus. 
but could not ignore slavery, could not stay silent during the civil rights movement of the mid-1900s. And today we must speak out on the issues of our day, whether it's human trafficking, abortion, poverty, domestic abuse, or persecution. We are in a war. We are in a war. In the book, Well-Versed by James Garlow, and if you, if you want to read a great book, get it, it's Well-Versed. Dr. James Garlow wrote it, and he wrote this. He said, an elderly former Marine and retired math professor in my church shocked me one day with these words. I was a good Marine, but I never got a chance to prove it. And Jim asked him, what do you mean? He said, I was a Marine after the Korean War, but before the Vietnam War. Since I was between wars, I never got a chance to fight. I never got a chance to prove what a good Marine I was. Then he turns around and says to us, you were not born between wars. We are alive in a time of tumultuous ideas and concepts. We are in a war. We are in a war. A war for truth, righteousness, and justice. Welcome to the war. The history of man has been called a history of war. And as we study mankind's past, we see many of the military campaigns fought since the beginning of time. Sometimes a single battle determining the course of the entire world. There were the ancient military campaigns of the Greeks led by Alexander the Great, the Romans, the Asians like Genghis Khan, the Holy Wars, the Great Crusades, the Napoleonic Wars, lots of wars. In American history, we've had the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, Civil War, the Spanish-American War. And in, in the last century, we had World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, Iraq, War in Afghanistan, Syria, and the most famous, of course, Star Wars. Just seeing if you're awake, okay. Today, we're going to look at a first battle of a war. And this campaign is very significant, probably more than any other war in history, because Israel, the nation of Israel, was going to take back the land of Canaan from the heathen Canaanites and free it for occupation and possession for God's people. And through this nation of Israel, God would someday send his Messiah, the Savior of the entire world, Jesus Christ. We are recipients of that blessing today. Canaan had become so evil, one could hardly describe the terrible practices. Idolatry, prostitution, which was part of their religion. Infanticide, which was included sacrificing babies to their gods. There are a lot of parallels between then and America today. Idolatry of materialism, entertainment, legalized prostitution in many places, sex trafficking, open practice of homosexuality, easy divorce leading to the destruction of family, forget marriage, just live together, gender confusion, infanticide, sacrificing babies to the gods of selfishness and convenience. We call it abortion, we call it a choice. Standing before the church, before us today, is a nation nearly as evil and decadent as Canaan. There is a war just as real as any world war that works its way into the physical realm. But the battle is, first of all, in the spiritual realm. But it always works its way out into the physical realm. And we have to say, where do we start? How do we fight the battle in the spiritual realm? And how do we fight it in the physical realm? Where does it begin and end? And how do we navigate this? I don't have all those answers today. As we look at the ancient text today, I want to draw some lessons. What kind of battles are we fighting? 
Who is our opponent? What is our strategy? And how? How do we win? How do we win? Today, rules of engagement, five rules for winning our battles. As we look at Joshua, the sixth chapter, very well-known passage, very well-known passage, Joshua 6, it's on page 172 in the Bible in the rack in front of you, where you can follow it on the screen. Joshua 6, we're going to read from starting with verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. Verse 12, Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord, blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on the, that day, they circled the city seven times. On the seventh time around, the priests sounded the trumpet blast. Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. In verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that every man charged in, and they took the city. Jericho is the key city, and this is the key battle. If Israel wins here, they have a great chance of, of occupying and winning the occupation of Canaan. What what were the rules of engagement? What was God's plan for this? And what, what are our rules for engagement and what is God's plan for us? How do we fight to win? These are principles to winning as we face obstacles or Jerichos in our personal life too. We sang earlier about the God of the impossible, the God is good. We all have these kinds of Jerichos or impossibles in our life. Five rules for winning our battles. The first rule for engagement is, is accept Mission Impossible. Accept Mission Impossible. If you've ever watched the television series or seen the movies or the remake of Mission Impossible, the team leaders always told via recording, your mission, should you decide to accept it. And then it's always this impossible mission that's given to them. An impossible mission. Insurmountable obstacles. And when we look at that, we have to realize that without God, there's no way we can win this. But the first rule is to accept mission impossible. Before Israel stood a mission impossible, insurmountable obstacle. No one on earth had the technology or power to take Jericho down. Jericho, Jericho had high double walls. It, it says it was tightly shut. No one went in and no one went out. What does that represent for us today? To the church, the people of God, what is our mission impossible today? What insurmountable obstacles do we face? Well, first, we were given a mission that says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and, and doing it. And the whole world, whole world. Um, starts with our neighborhood, Eau Claire, Chippewa Valley, Wisconsin, the United States, and the whole world. Sound impossible? 
It's really, really big. That's a big one. But how do we bite off part of this? You know, we can pass laws, educate people, make great scientific advances, technological change, but make absolutely no difference if people remain the same. People need heart change. People need to change. And the only person who ever claimed to be able to change life is Jesus. So how does this happen? Does it happen with political activism? Does it happen with intimidating people? What, what, what is it? No, it's sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they can be loved into the kingdom of God. It's impossible, but only God, by his Holy Spirit, can do that through you. We start locally and go globally. Say, that's, that, that's really impossible. How can we make a difference? Well, if our vision does not include accomplishing the impossible, then our vision is too small. Our vision is too small. We don't need God for that. If our, if our mission is achievable in human strength, if our goals are within our grasp, then we do not need God. If we can do church on our own, God becomes irrelevant. And many, many churches exist for years with absolutely no challenges. The only goal of many churches is pay the bills. Pay the bills. Keep the doors open. Do we have a mission beyond that? That's, that's the question. Vision and direction. We need mission impossible. How can we fulfill our mission to reach our culture for Jesus Christ, our neighborhood? We must think outside the box. And I can't give you every detail of, of how to do that today. But asking you to think outside the box, how am I to reach people in my sphere of influence? It's not traditional church programs. We all live in different neighborhoods. What are the needs out there? I don't know what the needs are, you do. But it starts with something called prayer, asking God. If, if, if you're not sure, and, and that, that's fine because not many of us are really sure, by the way, Donovan, welcome back. I just saw you over there in Norway. He had a heart attack a couple weeks ago and, and uh, just, about, just about went to heaven. But God brought him back and he's here today. So pray, praise God. Praise God for that. Impossible. <laughs> Praying and asking God, what is it that he wants us to do? What kind of mission impossible does he want me to accomplish? What, what is it that's too big for me to accomplish? There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 10. And we don't have time to unpack this whole verse, but I, I wanted to include it. It's in your notes. And it reads this. It says, verses 3 to 5, 1 Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, and we all live in the world, at least I do, I hope you do, okay? We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now in your notes, I want you to circle three words on that verse. Strongholds, arguments, and pretension. Strongholds, arguments, and pretension. It says we have weapons to demolish strongholds, arguments, and pretension. Strongholds, what, what is a stronghold? The book of James says that 
Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. If you do, you'll give the devil an opportunity or he'll give him a foothold. If, if we allow certain sins in our life, we will allow Satan to have a foothold. Now, it doesn't mean he, we're demon-possessed or controlled or whatever, but we give him an area of influence. And if we give Satan or the devil an area of influence, he will grab that and he will push on that, push on that till it becomes a stronghold, so he begins to control. A stronghold is an area of sin or area of weakness in our life that Satan wants to come in and influence us. And that may be anger, it could be bitterness or hatred, could be lust or pornography, it could be gossip, could be immorality, it could be sexual sin or perversion, could be materialism, it can be, it can be covetousness, it can be any number of things that we allow to be a besetting sin, that can become a stronghold. How do we demolish strongholds? We have the power to demolish strongholds. We also have the weapons to, to demolish arguments. Arguments here are, are false truths. Now we, we hear this, these arguments all the time about, about, about whether it's scientific or if it's an opinion, is it fact or whatever, all kinds of things. False truths. That things like abortion is a woman's choice. Life begins at birth, not conception. There are many genders. For 6,000 years, there were two genders. Now there are 70 or 80. I mean, it's, just, it, it's beyond imagination. These are arguments. And how do we fight against those? We fight against it with truth. Truth. And it's, it's critical that we, as the people of God, understand truth. So we're not sucked into these kinds of arguments. Arguments. I've talked about this before. It's very important that we understand this because most of us learn this, most of us learn this in catechism or in Sunday school, that we, when we are born, we, we had a sin nature, we were born into sin, so we all had a sin nature, okay? And, and it's that sin nature that, that needs to be changed and Jesus came so that he could give us victory over the power of sin and the presence of sin and be able to get victory over sin. But that's part of our human nature Sin. And the problem is that's been twisted, and I want to just talk about this this morning. And I'm going to make some statements you may sound jarring to you, because these, we've, been, we've been inundated with this for many years now. There is no such thing as sexual orientation. There's no such thing as sexual orientation. There's only gender. There's only gender, male and female. Sexual orientation is a recent construct that was created to justify the sin of homosexuality. So we can say I was born that way. It's my orientation, or I, I was oriented by my nature or my whatever. No, it's not sexual orientation, it's sin orientation. And we all have sin orientation because we were born with sin orientation. All of us says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No room for arrogance, no room for pointing fingers and saying, I'm better than you. No, we are all sinners. We all have sin orientation. We were born with sin. We all learned that in catechism in Sunday school way back when. It's a simple truth that we have sin inside of each of us. And our sin orientation may be different things, different, different types of sin that beset us. 
maybe gossip, it could be bitterness, it could be lust, it could be covetousness, it could be slander. And, and many times we, we try to justify it. Now, most of us won't justify adultery by saying, I have an orientation towards adultery, I just like other people's spouses. Yeah. People aren't gonna take that. Every culture in the world has a, has a prohibition against adultery, it's not just our, our, our culture. Everybody frowns on adultery, okay? That's like a universal. Or, I, I like to steal. Steal is, is my thing. I, I was born that way. I was born a thief, okay? No, you were born a, a sinner, and you choose to orient yourself and do that and work it out in thievery or stealing, whatever it is. Or, I prefer murder since I have an orientation towards murder. You know, that, those are absurd statements, those sins, and, and all of us can have an orientation and do have orientation towards sin, and we may have a particular sin that's larger in its challenge for each and every one of us. And to not admit that is to be deceived. We must understand that we all have sin orientation. But only one of the sins found in the Bible is separated from the designation as sin orientation in our culture. There's only one sin that is not sin orientation, that's homosexuality. All the other sins are sins, but this one is a set apart in its own category and said this is sexual orientation. Why, because we don't want to take responsibility for something. God has created male and female, he's created parameters, we studied this in the Ten Commandments. This is how God made humanity to operate and to work within the context of boundaries, and it works when it's done right. And our basis for truth can't be my opinion or my feelings or the cultural standards or even laws passed by Congress. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Our standard for faith and practice for truth and sound arguments is the word of the living God. It is the Bible. That's where we, that's where we base our standards. Absent that, one can justify any belief or behavior since the heart, it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We desperately need truth. And let me tell you something. This is not PC. You say some of these things that I just said and you may be called out for hate speech. We don't hate people. But we, like God, God says he hates sin. Why does he hate sin? Because it destroys lives. And we must have the same kind of repulsion for sin because it destroys people's lives and it can send them to a Christless eternity. And we must espouse truth. Truth. Truth will demolish arguments. Then there's pretension. We're not gonna spend any much time. Pretending or deception. Some, that we just spend time pretending. Our weapons, it says, have divine power to demolish strongholds, arguments, and pretensions. Divine power, that's mission impossible. And we need to accept mission impossible. Now what about individually? What about How about those mission impossibles in our personal lives, insurmountable articles, obstacles? What Jerichos are in your life right now? What is standing in the way of you possessing all that God has for you? God says, I have all of this for you. What Jericho 
is standing in the way of that now? Is it a place of temptation? Is, a, is it a past incident? Is it beating yourself up for something you said or did and you just can't get beyond the guilt? Maybe it's a place of spiritual warfare, a, a struggle with doubt. Who doesn't struggle with doubt? Maybe it's hard time taking God and his word at face value as truth. Maybe it's fear. It could be un, an unforgiving spirit, resentful or bitterness towards someone who betrayed you, depression or sickness, the loss of a loved one, a relationship struggle in, in marriage or a parent or, or, or a child, a confusing emotions, struggle with someone with, that's trying to control you. We all have Jerichos in our life. All of us have mission impossibles. And if we went around the room, it would take us several hours to share we would all be able to share that we all have mission impossibles in our lives. Without God, we'll never win. And winning, these are the key to the land for possessing all that God has for us. Now, God gives a promise to Joshua, and God gives a promise to us. I love this. Verse 2 says, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Now, that reads past tense. I have given Jericho into your hand. In God's, God's eyes, it's already won. The victory is already won. The enemy is already defeated. The territory is already possessed. And he says that to you and to me. I have already given you victory. Live in it. I've won. So accept mission impossible. Secondly, listen to God's strategy. Listen to God's strategy. Now, I wish I could have been at the meeting that Joshua had with his military advisors when he told them God's strategy. Okay? I can hear them say, okay, okay, Joshua, let me get this straight. For six days, we walk around the city of Jericho, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, say absolutely nothing while the seven priests blow the ram's horns. Got it. Then on the seventh day, we walk around seven times in silence. Got it. Then all at once, when the trumpets start blowing, we shout at the walls and they fall down. Seriously? Are you kidding me? You can imagine the strategy doesn't sound very convincing, doesn't sound logical, doesn't make sense. Well, you know what? God's strategy doesn't always make sense to us. <laughs> doesn't always make sense to us. God sees the whole picture. God sees things we do not see. God orchestrates events supernaturally. Our job is to listen. To listen. Doesn't make sense. One of the most telling verses in the New Testament I have this on your notes as well. Is, is for passages, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 8. And Paul writes, No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Whoa! The rulers of this age, that, that can refer to the Romans or the Jewish leaders who had Jesus crucified, or it can refer to satanic beings, and I think that's probably what it is, rulers of the age. They would not have crucified. They, they didn't realize that by crucifying, killing Jesus would be their own undoing. He said he hid it from them. See, this was God's strategy. Jesus dies, and we live. Through death comes life. Doesn't make sense. It was hidden. It was hidden from the beginning of time. That was God's strategy. Totally doesn't make sense. Now we see it afterwards. We see the resurrection and we hear all this stuff. But this, this was before his death and resurrection. And he predicted it and predicted his resurrection. It was hidden from everybody. God's strategy is different. It's different. 
If you want to become great, you become the servant of everybody. See, God's plan, God's strategy for saving the world, nobody understood it. And God's plan may not make sense to us. Our job is to listen. So listen. Listen to God. Now, we have some obstacles to hearing God's strategy. What present, prevents us? There are a lot of things. A few of them are, first of all, the busyness. We're too busy to slow down, too busy to pray, too busy to meditate, too busy to read the word, too busy. And sometimes our schedules get in the way of actually hearing God's voice, hearing his strategy. Or there's noisiness, too many voices clamoring for our ears, competing distractions. We have so many voices telling us what to believe. Whether it's television, internet, radio, other people, friends, everybody telling you what to believe, what to see, what to, what to hear. Or maybe something called sin, let her see. Now we have the ability to discern, although imperfectly, the will of God, right and wrong, through something called our conscience. Okay, everybody has a conscience, ways right and wrong. And you can see it in children. When they're really small, they know when they've done wrong. <laughs> and they hang their head. You know, you can watch that conscience work. But if we sin willfully and repetitively, our conscience can lose its sensitivity. And some people just live in that kind of rebellion against God and they sin repetitively. Pretty soon, it's, it's like, like, like working on a jackhammer all day without ear protection then trying to hear something. You, you, your ears lose the sensitivity. See, God has a strategy. Question is, are you listening? Are you listening? His, his strategy may not make sense in the natural. And other people may challenge your sanity or challenge your leadership, whatever. But listen to God's strategy. Number three, obey unconditionally. Obey unconditionally. Once a day in silence, just trumpets for six days. What, what about three days? You know how restless the people can get if I can't keep them in line for seven days. And that seven days, I, I don't know, can't, can't we do it a little differently? Have you ever told God you have a better idea? I, I, al I always have a better idea. I always do. But God, you, you, you know, I, 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 okay. I have a better idea. Now, three factors in obedience. First one is a silence factor. Silence factor. I know why he wanted silence. Absolute silence. Then there's no second guessing. There's no complaining. No grumbling. It's just obedience. Everybody keep their mouth shut. Okay, he said, I want you silent. Sometimes we need to be quiet and obey. It's, it's very hard to do because we go, but, but, but God, no, no, quiet. Then there's a time factor, obedience over time. And I can imagine the Israelites, when, when you look at where they came from, they just had victory over the Amorite kings. They crossed the Jordan River saying, wow, we can do anything. Jericho, bring them on. We can take them on. Then they started marching around Jericho on first day. Those walls aren't that big and that bad. We can do this. I think we can take them. Second day, the walls are still there. They haven't moved yet, but they get to the third day, and wow, by the end of the sixth day, everybody probably saw it. I guess it is impossible. It might have taken 13 trips around those walls every night going back to the camp, seeing that nothing had changed. And they said, I guess we need God again. Do you ever say that? I guess. I guess I, I guess I need God again. Sometimes we go around and around our Jericho, our, our mission impossible, trying to see if there's any solution. And we look at it from every angle around the angle. You know, 
seven, eight, ten, thirteen times. And God allows us to keep going around and around again until we see, I need God. Again. Again. Why does God do that? Our entire Christian life is a journey from independence to dependence. Independence to dependence. Reliance on self and my strength and resources to reliance on God and his resources. Do you resist that as much as I do? I, I, don't, I don't like that. I want to do it myself. I want to do it on my own. I don't want to have to need anybody. And God says, if you really knew how really bad you need me, go around again. <laughs> so we go around that, that obstacle again. God is constantly teaching us the principle found in John 15. It says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. Oh, man. Apart from God, we can do nothing. So there's the silence factor and the time factor. Then there's the trust factor. How, how far do I trust God? Where are you today in this journey around the impossible? And fourth in the rules of engagement, worship enthusiastically. Worship enthusiastically. Verse 20 says, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. Amazing. Now, I don't believe that people shouted at the walls. Okay? I, I, I don't think that. I think they shouted praise to God. They praised God. They realized at that point they weren't going to be able to do this, so they shouted praise to God, and something miraculous happened. As we praise and worship the God of the universe, he performs miracles. What we accomplish in worship, we can accomplish no other way. No other way. In 2 Chronicles 20, it's a, it's a great story. Judah was surrounded by the armies of three nations intent on their destruction. And King Jehoshaphat, who was the king at that time, first he called the people to prayer and fasting. Good thing to do when you have this surrounded by enemies. Then he, and he famously said in verse 12, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a good starting point. I don't know what to do, so my eyes are going to be on you, God. Okay? My eyes are on you. And then all the people worshiped and praised the Lord. And we get to verses 20 to 22. They were given instructions. This is how you're going to win. Verse 20, it says, Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. There's all these armies out there. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. What did he do? He set the worship team out in front of the army. Most of the worship team I know aren't quite that courageous, but that's what he did. He said, I'm, I'm going to send out the worshipers, the praisers. And as they praised God, as they worshiped God, his power was released. 
supernatural way, and the enemy was defeated. God routed the enemy as they worshipped. We're not here on Sunday mornings just to sing songs and play church. We come together to worship the living God. If you haven't noticed yet, all the songs we sing are about and to God. And when we come together to worship the living God, the power of that worship can blow down the walls. Worship is warfare. Satan is allergic to praise. He has to flee. When we worship, Satan flees, and the host of angels around us assemble to join us. Now, I know we don't see that, but the angelic beings are drawn to praise, and when we have worship, and we're worshiping God in spirit and in truth, Satan flees, and we are surrounded by heavenly hosts. God inhabits the praises of his people. We worship, and God moves. Now, we don't worship God to manipulate him or try to appease him, as, even if, if we could. We worship God because he's worthy of our adoration, our love, and respect, and devotion. And when we lift them up, all people are drawn to him. That's worship corporately. Also talking about worship personally, where our whole lives are a personal expression of worship before God. We don't have time to look at it, but Romans 12.1 talks about worshiping God as, as our serving God as an act of our worship. Worship. So accept the mission of possible. Listen to God's strategy. Obey unconditionally. Worship enthusiastically. And watch God do his thing. Watch God do his thing. We saw him do his water thing, the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Now here's the wall thing, okay? Water thing, now the wall thing. Thirteen times around the city and nothing, but as people, ordinary people just like you and me, struggled with the impossible, wondered how long they'd have to do this. Is this really going to work? But they worshiped and they shouted to God, and at the last moment, the walls fell flat. The walls falling down are a symbol of the collapse of all worldly powers before God's power. We see all this stuff around us. All those worldly powers, they will fall flat in the middle of God's powers. Now you may ask the question, is God really in control? Look at the news, read the internet news. Oh man, is God really in control? And does he care about my mission impossible? Does he even know about my mission impossible? A number of years ago, I was, when we were pastoring in, in Lakewood, Washington, a church now called Oasis Church of Lakewood. I was driving back from a late lunch appointment. Adjacent to the property that we had, we had five acres of land. Adjacent to the property was Flat Creek and, and a wetlands. And the wetlands that continued across this busy four-lane road that we were situated on. So wetlands on both sides. And as I drove into the parking lot, I observed a mama and papa Canadian geese, followed by eight little goslings, marching straight down our parking lot driveway, intending to cross this four-lane road to get to the wetlands on the other side. 
And I could, I could picture what would happen if they tried to cross. So I jumped back in my car, and as the family of geese approached the road, I drove my car out into the road and parked it diagonally across traffic and got out and waved and, and started stopping traffic, both directions. And, and interesting, people were very good-natured when they saw why, and they waved and they honked their approval at this family of geese as they paraded across Lakewood Drive and arrived safely on the other side. And as, as I thought about it later, I thought about the timing. The timing of my late lunch, why I was late, the speed of the service at the restaurant, which was too slow, the timing of the conversation I had with the person I met, all variables of timing. And, and then the timing that the geese were starting to make their cross over that busy four-lane road. Did God know all that ahead of time? Did he even care? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, speaking of his care for us, you are of much more value than any goose or gosling? Or maybe it was a sparrow. And it occurs to me that if God could orchestrate that goose crossing, timing it perfectly with the many variables present, he just might be aware of your mission impossible today. Maybe, just maybe, if we follow his rules of engagement, we will see God do his thing and we can win our battles or the impossible as we choose to stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us examples of your supernatural work time and again throughout the Bible. And I pray that we would take encouragement in this today. And no matter where people are at, they may have been walking around these walls a long time. This mission impossible. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, today that you, by your grace and by your strength, would build us up and build our faith as we face those missions impossibles. And we thank you. Let's stand, shall we? Still stands, great is your faithfulness.
if, if you're facing an impossible this morning and you want prayer, we'll have a prayer team over here after the service. And please pray for them before. You can also uh, fill out the Connect card of the prayer.